morning and welcome everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88. Right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network, wherever you are. Positively different radio in the morning and you're with the double L team, Lyle and Lawson. Lawson, how are you this morning? Oh man, I'm great. You're great I'm this morning? so good. I say that you ask me how I am every morning. I do every like, morning, and you have the same reply every morning, I'm which just, is just fantastic. I'm great. Do you ever expect me to say I'm sad? Well, if you're sad, then you should say you're sad. Well, I'm not sad. You're not sad. So life is I good. Can, I can tell you not Life sad. is so good. I, uh, oh, I, was just, I was telling Shell, producer Shell before, that you know, in, in this new area that I've just moved into, there is a, a Japanese restaurant there that does vegan food. Yes. Oh, and it's so good. Like, like it's actually like when I say Japanese restaurant, it's like a real Japanese restaurant with real Japanese people cooking real Japanese food. And that, it's that's, vegan. that sounds so epic. Oh, that sounds, that so sounds so epic. good. And just a little bit of a uh, a teaser for you all. Speaking Ooh. about Japanese restaurants, mm. on Monday morning we will be doing our Anzac Day special. Mm. Uh, of course, uh, that's the day after Anzac Day, but hey, that's when we get to do our radio. And we are going to do something most unusual for Anzac Day because we're actually going to interview a Japanese girl. Yeah, and it's going to be amazing. And let me say, it's epic. It's going to be so epic. You need to be listening. We never get to hear the human stories from the other side. We mm. only ever, we are the winners, so we tell our stories. Mm. But there are very real, very human stories on the other side of, you know, tremendous suffering and so forth. And so, mm. yeah, that's going to be amazing. Um, make sure that you tune in on Monday morning. Do not miss Hannah Nakagawa's uh, interview on Monday morning, it's going to be absolutely amazing. Mm, 100%. All right, dude. I got distracted. All I'm thinking about is food now. Yes, Japanese food. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. All right, so uh, let's see who else can uh, figure out the answer to which book this is. A stated collaboration between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's have some positively different news this morning, Lawson. All right. So, Lyle, I have come across the best government scheme of all time. Okay. So, we currently have a government scheme running in New South Wales. Yes. Download the Service New South Wales app, and then you get free stuff. Yes. You get to go to restaurants and scan a barcode. It's not actually free. Well, it costs the government. Free, it's probably free it's for free, you. It's free for us, it's but free it for costs you. the government. Look, I pay tax. Okay, all right. Like, very, <laughs> not a huge amount. Like, you're a student, you pay, what, $10 a year? <laughs> yeah, I pay a small amount of tax, but essentially, yeah, like, in, in New South Wales, we have uh, this scheme running. Okay. Enjoy your free stuff that I'm paying for, Lawson. <laughs> you're welcome. You're also paying for my uni. Uh, dude, you're really hooking me up. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Um, no, so check this out. The French government is planning to give citizens who want to trade their old car I- cars in a $3,000 grant towards the purchase of a brand new e-bike. Okay. Which is awesome. This is like the, gr- like, this is the best thing I've ever read ever. Well, in terms of government schemes. Okay. So basically, if you say you've got some old dodgy car, right? Like the one. Well, you- here's the thing. I typically, being a bogan, have uh-huh. a collection of old dodgy cars in my backyard. Mm-hmm. So I could trade each one of them for three thousand. I could, I could just have a fleet of e-bikes. e-bikes. Yeah. I wonder whether French people just don't have bogan culture that um, you know 
if you cut your grass and you find a car, you might just be a bogan. <laughs> <laughs> well, dude, I'm just thinking, like, imagine you live in France, you have, like, a 1998 Renault Clio with, like, uh, you know... 350,000 Ks on it that barely runs. Just trade it and get a new e-bike. How sick's that? Yeah. So this is, this is awesome. Obviously, this is a part of an initiative like France being, I think, one of the most climate conscious countries in the world at the moment. Really forward thinking. They're just trying to do everything that they can. Um, to, yeah, they have like the, the 2040 plan, which is to, yeah, by this time, um, reduce emissions by 40% across the board, which is, a huge number because, you know, industry and everything still exists and you just want to reduce it all. So one of the ways that they're going about that is obviously, you know, giving people e-bikes. You know, the, the conversation always comes up. The argument is like, oh, so you don't have a car which makes, you know, fumes, but then you, you know, you plug your e-bike or e-car or, you know, Tesla or whatever into a PowerPoint that then is connected to a power station and that makes fumes. Like, how is that any better? But the reality is, is that, um, you know, a like efficiency wise compared to, you know, a power station makes much more, uh, much, sorry, much less emissions, um, than like petrol, like comparatively, like if you have an electric car and the, the, the energy that it took to, you know, charge that electric car and how much emissions that it made, how much pollution that it created through the power station is much less. So here's what I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about this the other day, uh, because we had that story on electric trucks Mm -hmm. and here's the challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, because your electric trucks have got a 500-kilometre range and then you've got a one-hour recharge back to 80%. So let's say that you are running a load, say, from here to Brisbane. You're not going to make that. Um, you're obviously going to have to recharge twice on the way. Mm-hmm. And it's a one-hour recharge, whereas diesel is like, what, a 10-minute recharge? Yeah. And I'm just kind of thinking that's going to take up a lot of parking space. Mm. While they're all recharging. See, this is the big, like, unavoidable issue that's been there. Like, for yeah, example, it's a bit the, of a challenge, isn't it? The, be- the base model tech, uh, Tesla has, like, a, run- a running range of, like, 250Ks. Which is a bit much a waste of time in Australia. Yeah, like, literally, I know someone who drove up here from Sydney in their Tesla and got, like, halfway home and, like, stalled and had to get someone to pick them up. Mm. Which just isn't good. So Australia's not a great country for um, no, e-vehicles. No, but then think about it. It's like, oh, well, I live in the city, so I'm just going to, you know, drive it. Yes, and I tell you what, you know, living in the city, an e-bike. I think See, this is so the thing. I'm like, why would you buy a Tesla for thousands of dollars when you could be French and trade your car in for a $3,000 e-bike? Like, a $3,000 e-bike's a pretty good e-bike. Yeah. So this is this is the way, guys. We need this in Australia too. Like, if you live in Sydney, trade in your car for an e-bike, hundred percent. But then, what are you going to do with all those lithium batteries once they work out? Once they wear out? Um, I don't know. Turn them into Land cow field. feed. <laughs> uh, our world. We've got to face it. Our world faces massive challenges. It does, and it's massively challenging to, you know. Be in charge of our planet right now. Yeah. You know, God has God has given us as human beings the opportunity to be in charge of this world, and 
it's just like, wow, we have we have some huge challenges here. There's a conversation to be had there about, you know, the pressure of consumerism and that we've created these problems for ourselves because yes. of our want for convenience and ease. Absolutely. So it's... Mm. Human beings survived <laughs> quite well for 6,000 years without... Yeah, yeah without, without we were, wrecking we were, the planet. We too. were a successful species. Mm. We practice, you know, like even thousands of years ago, they practiced biosustainable farming, like yes. mass farming. And I mean, all we, these we talk about renewables and so forth. Well, lithium's not a renewable. <laughs> you know, there's only X amount of lithium in the world, and once it's all been used up and turned back into toxic waste, then what do you do? Feed it to cows. which like we read that story like it was either this week or last week where they're just like oh yeah let's turn co they turn they make co2 into cow feed yeah okay yeah 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 all right yeah just feed it to cows this is the other thing about human beings is human beings are smart we are incredibly intelligent so smart smart enough to feed co2 to cows and then eat the cows yeah well I don't know whether that's smart or not. I'm, I'm sort of, the jury is out on that one. Yeah. I, I, I'm very much, yeah. You know how you solve that problem? Don't eat cows. Don't eat cows. Problem mm. solved. See, this is, this is the thing. This is the thing. Mm-hmm. The easy way, the easy way to um, solve our, our you know, CO2 problems and all that kind of stuff is not e-bikes. Mm-hmm. It's not eating cows. Stop eating cows. Problem solved. There's your carbon <laughs> offset right there. Bam. See, I don't eat cows. That's my carbon offset so that I can own a V8. <laughs> Do you own a V8? No. At the moment? No. But you would like to. Who wouldn't? Yeah, 100%. I agree. <laughs> I have my full license. I'm from there. Yeah, bro. Dude, V8 e-bike. Um, Let's go. The, the um, V8 bicycle. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right, we're getting a little bit yeah, distracted look, I had morning. some more stuff to talk about, but we just simply don't have the time. But if you have an idea, you know, if you have anything to say on this topic, give us a call, 1-800-324-843, or send us, send us a text, 0491-064-669. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Okay, so here in Newcastle, a couple, uh, local story this morning, um, the trial of the eased liquor restrictions is a farce from a health perspective. This is according to Dr. Adrian Dunlop, who has spent 25 years, as a 25 years uh, expert in working in drug and alcohol abuse and harm. Mm. He's a professor of the Royal Australian College of Physicians. Um, and he has slammed the idea that Newcastle was more that that Newcastle now has a more mature drinking culture than it had before. Oh wow! Okay, so basically, what he said, you know, you look over the history of you know drinking and alcohol and so forth, and it goes back a very long way, and the culture doesn't really change that much because human nature doesn't change, mm. and the only way that the the culture of drinking would change is if human nature was to change. He says that this is a whole lot of spin doctoring. He says it's not a it's not a trial. He says it's a farce. It's a, he says it's a pantomime because there was never ever any intention of analysing the uh, research that was produced by the trial, mm. the data produced. Mm. And none of the data has been looked at, none of it has been collated, none of it has been considered, and of course we're moving straight from the trial straight into, well, we're just going to get rid of uh, the one thirty lockout laws and keep pubs and clubs open until 3.30, mm. um, and 
it's like, well, if you're not actually going to do with anything with the data from the trial, why did you call it a trial in the first place? Why weren't you just honest and come out and say, look, we're just going to change the law? Mm. It's got nothing to do with a trial if you're not going to analyse the data. Um, so this is the, uh, the situation. He says that there is zero evidence. This is a, this is a decision based on zero evidence and 100% uh, a political decision. It has nothing to do with public safety and everything about making money. I completely agree. Yes. I. I. So the the concept of the the lockout laws have uh, lockout laws in general have been a personal gripe of mine for a long time. I don't drink. Yes. I haven't drunk for. A, I haven't drank for a long time. Um, praise the Lord. Amen. I, am, I am sober. Um, I have been for a long time. But yeah, look, uh, the lockout laws have always been a political thing. Yes. Um, particularly so in in Sydney. Um, th- that was like the first place where lockout laws came in. The one thirty lockout laws. And Newcastle is the last place that still has them. Yeah. But check this out in Syria, in Sydney during its you know total use, you know the only suburb that was unaffected by lockout laws was Piermont. You know what's in Piermont? Starkey, the Star, Star Casino, City, City Casino. Yeah, yeah. So like you, you had the rest of the city being locked down by one thirty. You know, uh, uh, because of public safety. Look, we want to help people. Um, except the one place that is ruining, not that the other places in the clubs and pubs aren't doing a tremendous, um, work in ruining people's lives, but the one place that I believe is ruining people's lives the most, because it's not only you've got alcohol in the mix, but then alcohol and gambling. Yeah, it's like a a lethal toxic mix. Literally like one of the worst things ever. It's just carbon, it's, 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 it's been custom, I should say, designed to destroy people's lives. 100%. And that is the one place in Sydney in terms of its, you know, districts of, you know, nine entertainment and everything like that, that was unaffected by the lockout laws. Yeah. Why? Because of politics. politics because politics, of politics, money. Politics, money and politics. So, money all the Oh, long. yeah. Just like the lockout law is good in concept, but the people who implemented them and used them and, you know, got rid of them have all come from the perspective that, look, we're just going to make some money. Which is really tough. What else do we have to talk about? Uh, Okay, so this is um, a story that I did promise we'd cover coming out of the University of Melbourne. And, of course, it was at the University of Melbourne that tried to get uh, Dr. Holly Lawford-Smith fired for defending women's rights. She created a safe place where women could talk about women's safe places Mm. and uh, tell the stories of what was actually happening because these stories are not told in the media, but the stories of what's actually happening in women's safe places like toilets and so forth and changing rooms etc that are now being invaded by men mm. and these are men that are fully male fully men um, and uh, are just simply saying you know walking on in there and using them as they feel free to do so simply because they say well I identify as being a woman mm. and under you know new laws and new movements and so forth it's like well you're just shamed into silence you can't say anything on that and so she made a space where people could actually talk about that a, uh, a website where people could post up their stories of just horrific abuse of women taking place in these safe places wow. well the University of Melbourne tried to have her fired for doing so mm. So that was uh, that was pretty full on. Well, now they've gone even further because they've now come out with a statement against 
free speech. I mean, and this is not the kind of statement where, you know, it implies that they're against free speech. It's a statement that simply comes out and says, no, we're against free speech. Mm. And uh, let me just, you know, if you've been following anything in the world recently, you know that, you know, um, your Twitter activists, your social media activists and so forth can claim that, you know, anybody who disagrees with them is causing harm or offending them. Anytime that anyone is offended, well, that is harm. Mm. And, of course, that's a uh, massive attack on free speech right there. Let me read you what, what the University of Melbourne actually said. The university does not support the exercise of free speech when the speech, okay, and here it comes, undermines the capacity of individuals to participate fully in the university. Okay, so that's entirely open to... It's it's completely subjective. It's completely subjective. If I feel offended today by something and I'm feeling like a snowflake today, I can define this how, and this is undermining my ability to to participate in the university, so therefore you can't say that. I could accuse my professors of treating me unfairly for giving me bad grades. Yes. And and get them fired. Okay, it prejudices the fulfilment by the university of its duty to foster the safety and well-being of staff and students. Well, I feel I feel that this is offensive, so therefore um, I feel unsafe. Mm. Or when it unreasonably disrupts or activities or operations of the university. Well, how do you define that? All of these are purely subjective. Mm. Now, there's one statement here where it's unlawful. That's obvious. Yeah. Um, but this is this this is like how could you how could you possibly get free speech so wrong? Now, okay, so why do I sit here and defend free speech? The answer is very simple. Freedom of speech and freedom of religion go hand in hand. Mm. Uh, you can't have one without the other, and these are two rights that we need to be able to defend. I mean, for instance, you know, some years ago the dark FOMO um dark mofo, I should say, not FOMO, but MOFO down in Hobart. You know, they've put all, right across Hobart, they've put all kinds of, you know, big red upside down crosses. Yeah. You know, that's just unbelievably offensive to somebody who is a Christian. That's something that is hurtful and painful. That's like just taking a knife, stabbing into the chest of somebody who's a Christian and turning the blade because you are criticizing, you know, their very best friend, somebody who gave their life for them. This is, this Mm. is like, you know, going around and blowing up all of the Anzac Day memorials on Anzac Day for Australians, for a Christian. That's how a Christian feels when they see this kind of thing. Mm. But while Dark Mofo, which is a basically a spiritualist, um, quasi-Satanist kind of uh, uh, exercise that they have down, celebration they have down in Hobart, you know, once a year, I absolutely defend their right to do so. Yeah. Because I defend their religious liberty and I defend their freedom of speech. Mm. And what we need to be able to do, the point of freedom of speech is not to defend people to say things that we agree with. Freedom of speech, the whole point of it is to defend the right of people to disagree with us. Mm. That's why freedom of speech exists. Uh, University of Melbourne is like, no, freedom of speech is to defend the right of people to agree with you only. Oof. That's pretty rough. Yikes. That's the world in which we live today, where freedom of religion and freedom of speech is very, very rapidly disappearing. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Joining us on the phone this morning is David Haupt. And David, so glad you can join us this morning. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning, Lyle, and good morning to your listeners. Good to be back. 
David, we've got this front page um, article in the Newcastle Herald today. Of course, the breakfast show comes out of Newcastle um, about children who are at risk. And when I read it, it sent a whole bunch of uh, alarms off in my mind. I know you've read the same article as well. What's actually going on here in The Hunter? And is this unique to our region? Well, it is a very sad report, namely of a very high percentage of kids, uh, 42% rise since 2014 of children that is at high risk of harm. In other words, they are growing up in an environment where the, uh, the whole future, the trajectory of the future will be impacted and the harm that is experienced either at home or in a caregiver environment. And where the uh, state government, uh, protective services uh, for about 44% of people, of those kids are unable even to do a proper assessment. We're talking here about some major issues of sexual abuse, physical harm, emotional uh, harm, and uh, things that we know that will impact children's um, education and the entire future and will impact the future generations that will come at the same time. Yeah, there is some there is some research here that is just absolutely alarming. I mean, they've got figures like you know fifty five children per case worker. I mean, that's that's got to be an impossibility. You've worked in this field for uh, decades now. How does how does it, how does a case worker even handle a load like that? It's impossible, and and therefore we see that so many children fall through the cracks. But alarming still to that is that those kids grow up in that at-risk behavior and duplicate that behavior again in the adult life into the next generation. And so epigenetics tells us that uh, if no intervention is made, between 30 to 50% of those kids will duplicate that same behavior to their children and the next generation. And it goes on and on and on from generation to generation. You talk about intervention taking place here. How effective is the intervention that takes place? Um, I'm thinking that a lot of these children probably need to be removed from their environment, put into foster care and so forth. Um, That's obviously going to come with its own issues. Um, How effective are are these um, methods that we have? I wouldn't want to, uh, you know, slam the uh, department because they're doing the best they can. Uh, but it, it is just impossible. 55 uh, cases to deal with for each caseworker is really dealing with intensive emotional issues with in, in people's lives is impossible for one person to deal with. So it is not very effective. And so often it is band-aid strips that we put on and we rush from the one to the other and children fall through the cracks. They eventually live on the street. They live with mental disorders. They have an inability to really to function well at school. And the, st- the statistics is, is horrifying that children that are actually known to the department, uh, in other words, they've accessed the part of the, the department, has a far greater risk of homelessness, lower literacy and numeracy. They uh, are more likely to develop vulnerability uh, school ent- at, at school entry levels. Uh, they're out of home care. We're almost 1.5 times as likely to have developed a vulnerability at the age of five. 
in in uh, the young teenagers, they so often would take those kids and place them into a a, a separate unit, but there is no community to rally around them, to support them, to help them how to navigate themselves living by themselves so they become at risk at, uh, with people that take advantage of them with drugs and so forth. Okay, so we take these uh, these young kids, you know, adolescents, teenagers and so forth, we put them in a unit, they've got no, you know, then no parenting and so forth um, and no community. You know, if I look back on my own experience at the age of 15, um, I left home and was, you know, lived a, a bit of a feral lifestyle in an abandoned apple picker's hut. But um, I did have a faith community um, around me. In other words, I was a part of a church. How much of a difference does that actually make in a child's life? One of the major protective factors uh, for these kids, um, out of all the research that I have done, I have found that in those kids that really made a success of their life, there was at least one person not related to that individual that had taken an interest in them and mentored them and guided them. And that is exactly what you find, hopefully in a faith-based agency. I just recently sat down with one of our young adult leaders of, of a, a church, and I challenged him. I said, your church has phenomenal facilities, Pathfinder clubs. You've got uh, stuff that you do with your young people. What if we can actually spark your department to um, challenge your young people to become involved with juvenile justice and take some of these at-risk kids and help them, give them exactly the same exposure, water skiing, uh, camping, and fishing, and all that mentorship programs that we do give our young people, and actually do it for at-risk kids. I've done some trials on that, and had a phenomenal outcome with young people that never realized that they could have fun without alcohol, without drugs, and, and those kind of things. The statistics here show that there are 50 at-risk children per day being, um, you know, coming through the system, being reported and then documented uh, within the Hunter New England region. And that's just one part of it. Obviously, you work right across North New South Wales. Um, are these figures unique to this particular region? It is a good uh, indicator of what happens in the rest of the country. What is very interesting, Lyle, is those kids that have contact with the protective services are at greater risk to end up in juvenile justice. I also worked in Sydney with exactly similar figures. It is horrifying. And it is sad that we just put band-aids instead of, because a government agency cannot do what the community actually should be doing, what the church should be doing. To save the kids' life takes a community to be involved. So let's say that, let's say that, um, you know, one of our listeners, you know, our listeners, they're listening in this morning and they're thinking, well, you know, I'm a part of a church. Uh, what can we do as, as, as being a part of a church? Where should a church start? Um, let's say that you've got like a Pathfinder or a Scout group or something like that happening that is a program for children, which would, which, you know, you're dealing with your low risk children because they're the children of church members. Uh, where should they start in reaching out to high risk children? 
One of the areas that I worked in was that I um, built a strong relationship with juvenile justice. And um, I shared with them what we could provide for the department and the involvement that we could, uh, you know, that they could have with us. And um, we sat down with them and we worked out strategies of developing programs where the children, before they are sent to to juvenile detention centers, they actually are sent into our program. And uh, we have trained mentors in the church. It was a Christian-based agency. And um, we trained them up and we just did mental programs. So I think the willingness to put up their hand and go to sit down with the police, with juvenile justice, and even with Department of Community Services or the, the old doctors uh, and, and say to them, we can provide some services to you people. I just recently uh, spoke to a young lady just uh, over the weekend past and uh, she takes in children and fosters them and uh, kids that normally would turn to be at risk kids. Some of those kids have grown up in a home and she says, I just wish that I could train up Christian families actually to provide a foster service and help uh, those kids change the trajectory of their life, change the direction that they inevitably will be going. It's very interesting, Lyle, that the statistics shows that if we could remove at risk for one year in Australia, we will have 26% less suicide, 20% less depression, 27% less anxiety disorders. That That is phenomenal statistics. If only we can reach those kids. And in order to reach those kids, we need to be involved in our community. Instead of just reporting, why not make the report as it is legally responsible for us to do, but at the same time rally around that family that are in crisis and try and support them? Mm, mm. Men, men, men mentoring men because most of those men come out of an unmentored home where a father was absent in their life. Yes, there's, 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 there's mothers that have grown up without mothers. When and how does she know how to deal with her child? When the child has colic, when the child in the middle of the night is running the temperatures, she's exhausted. Where is the extended family? One of the risk factors today is that we live in a mobile society where families have moved thousands of kilometers away from each other. The intent in designing the family unit was that we would have the extended family to support. Mm. We don't have that. In the absence of that, we should have the church that support and step into that role. And this is one of the things that comes out in this report where they state that one-third, in fact, uh, more than one-third of children who are reported and also documented as being at risk are never seen by a caseworker. And I'm thinking surely there's an opportunity here where faith communities, churches and so forth can step into that gap and say, look, we understand that you're being swamped and we have children's programs. We have things that we can do with children. We've, you know, we, we, 
have all of the child safety uh, protocols in place. We have all of these people who are trained and have, you know, their child safety checks that are done because, you know, in churches today, that's pretty much a requirement if you're going to be involved in any kind of church today. And it seems to me that we've got this, this, this great organization out there called our local Christian churches that are actually set up already to be able to do things with children and wouldn't it be great if you know these kids that are falling through the cracks because our government is just swamped could be at the very least referred to a local church somewhere where a church could just you know start doing something with these with these kids even if it is only once a day the sad thing is that now churches are made up out of very similar people that are out there in the community and harm and pain actually makes us self-centered and self-focused. While the Christian faith actually is challenging us to look beyond ourselves, to look at where we can make a difference in people's lives. So, so often we become involved with a condition. I will serve on the condition that. And that is what scares uh, departments away. What if a, a church organization actually will set up a program that is intended purely to influence people for the better and will actually do it with no strings attached? Will serve them? Because that is what the Christian leader, Jesus Christ, actually had done. He served people even who would nail him on a cross. He served them because that was the passion of his heart. It's a huge challenge for us right there on the front page of the Newcastle Herald this morning, a challenge for every Christian. Thank you for uh, talking with us about that this morning. David Helped. You're welcome. And I hope that we could challenge some of our faith-based communities towards this event because they are in actual fact investing in future generations. And if you'd like to have training, then give us a call here at Faith FM. Uh, David helped, and uh, the team that works with him can provide that kind of training. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.